I want to start today by showing you a clip from a children's cartoon. All right. Now, you might be thinking, children's cartoon? Well, that sounds cute and innocent. No. <laughs> I mean, it totally is, but not that innocent. Mostly innocent, but controversial all the same. You see, I don't know if you know this, but Bluey is an Australian cartoon. And uh, you know what's socially acceptable to show young children in Australia, it turns out, is not socially acceptable to show young children in America. Have anyone heard the Bluey controversy and how it gets censored in America? Well, this is, this is show you what shows up in my social media fees. <laughs> it has been recently discovered, I'm here, breaking news, that they edit and censor parts of Bluey when it's streamed in the United States. And it's true. Usually, they just cut out a few clips from the episode. But once in a while, they actually censored an entire episode. Now, what was that episode about that made it so inappropriate for American children? Any guesses? Farts. Very close. The episode is a trial episode between these two children and their parents, where one kid is accusing the other kid of farting on them. It's a fart episode, and in America, children don't fart. <laughs> I want to show you a similar clip uh, of, that were censored in America, but played in the original version. Uh, we'll watch this real quick. As with previous seasons, there have been a number of changes made to numerous episodes. So let's go through all the changes fans have noticed so far. Pass the parcel. At Muffin's birthday party, we very briefly get an overview shot, where we can see a pony dressed up like a unicorn with a pile of poop right behind it. In the Disney Plus edit, there is no poop. This appears to be the same unicorn pony and the same handler as we saw in the season 1 episode Markets, which has some very graphic pooping. Goodbye, Buttermilk. You're so beautiful. <laughs> which, of course, was also cut from the Disney Plus version of the episode. Born Yesterday. Bandit gets hit in the groin by a swing. Ah, swing! This is <laughs> In the Disney Plus version, they simply cut away before the impact. Ah, swing! Sorry, this is our street. Perfect. In the original, Bandit is having an adult conversation with his friend Fido about vasectomy. Look, I'm keen to get it done, but Chili, she wants to keep her options open, but I don't know. Do we want any more of these things running around? In the Disney Plus version, they're having a conversation about having their teeth removed? Yeah, I know. I probably should get it done. But I love my dog teeth. I don't know. What if one day I just want to bite someone? This is definitely one of the most baffling changes. Elective teeth removal surgery is not exactly normal, neither for humans nor canines. And Bandit apparently admits that he might want to bite someone in the future. Which arguably is behavior that's a lot worse and more easy to copy for kids than vasectomy would be. I guess Disney's more okay with conversations mentioning violent acts and highly unusual surgical procedures than they are with conversations related to reproduction. Alright, so should our kids get to see the original? It doesn't matter. You can decide for yourselves. I don't know. I don't really care. I'm showing this is just a very 
contemporary illustration of how one thing that's appropriate in one culture is inappropriate in another culture. And you know, when you think about American history and the fact that we were founded by a group called the Puritans, it was one of the kind of significant influences, we have a certain uncomfortableness with purity culture. That's Puritan, pure, you know, this is all. And so in other cultures, you know, like for example, and I'm gonna depart from my notes for a second here, I grew up where sex, anything related to sex is very taboo as a, as a child. We didn't talk about it, we didn't watch anything with it, but violence, not a problem. <laughs> uh, you know, watch any kinds of action flicks with my dad at a very young age. And, and, and we don't think about how I think in Europe, it's actually the opposite. It's like, no, we don't want our kids to see violent things, but like sex is like normal and healthy and whatever. So it's, it's a cultural thing. Uh, in Australia, kids can watch a unicorn pooping, no problem. In America, I'm surprised we're even allowed to believe in unicorns. But either way, cultures, majority cultures, often get to decide what is appropriate. And the problem is with this is whatever the majority culture deems appropriate, is often confused with what is moral. All right, some big ideas here. I'm gonna ponder this. When we believe something is right, so we believe something is right not because it's good or because it helps us become more like Jesus, but because we are conditioned by culture to think it's right. And we believe something is wrong, not because it's necessarily bad or because it hurts other people, but because we've been conditioned to think it's wrong. This is especially true in the workplace, and the American workplace has a whole list of unspoken rules, things that are just not accepted as good, what it means to be professional. But to counter the American workplace purity culture, here's a list of things that Jesus did while on the job that would not be acceptable in most workplace environments. One, yelled, argued, called people out publicly. Two, got angry and went on a rampage overturning tables. Can you imagine? You think he'd still have a job after that? No. If he did, he would get it lost in the next one. Three, brought a whip to work and drove people out of the office. True story. Four, refused to wash his hands, which in our world, post-COVID, very inappropriate. Now, in their context, it had to do with cleanliness rules, but you know. Five, spit on people. Remember that story? He was carrying someone of blindness uh, at the time, but you know, it still involved spit. Um, six, I put in there cried, you know. Usually, that's not very professional. Seven, certainly fraternized with sex workers. Gained a reputation for fraternizing with sex workers. Well, we can only imply certain things if someone who's friends with sex workers, especially a guy, what that means. Oh, and people have been making accusations against Jesus ever since, haven't they? Now, I would argue that all of this, this is true in Jesus' life, and yet none of these things are inherently wrong or evil. It just depends on the context and the motives because those matter sometimes more than the actual action. So today, this is what I want us to wrestle with. It's a big idea, but I want us to wrestle with it all the same. I trust your ability to wrestle with it. The difference between what is right and wrong versus what is simply taboo or culturally inappropriate. Right? We're gonna sit with this, we're gonna wrestle with this a little bit. So we're gonna talk about what it means to love the misfits and outcasts. And, and one of the ways that I'm thinking about misfits and outcasts, which I identify as often, is misfits and outcasts tend to live on the other side of the line. So this is the line, and over here is what's socially acceptable, and uh, over here is what is not. Sorry, guys. <laughs> 
I didn't think that one through. <laughs> you guys are fine, though. <laughs> so this is socially acceptable. Here's what I'm suggesting, that this line is arbitrary and cultural, and that immorality happens over here as much as over here, that you can be ethical here as well as you can be over here, and society kind of decides what is socially acceptable and what's taboo. So people become misfits sometimes, or they're cast aside by society, they're pushed aside, they're oppressed for a variety of reasons, and one of those reasons is because they are considered taboo or inappropriate or strange. They do things or say things that make the majority culture feel uncomfortable. And here's what makes it really hard is people who live over here, they also make mistakes. Those mistakes and those sins and those brokenness is magnified by their taboo nature, right? By their, we're already thinking less of them, and so the mistakes is just evidence of what you already assumed and what you already prejudiced. And then the people over here, they make a lot of the same mistakes, but you've given them the benefit of the doubt because they're professional and clean cut and they have their life together. Do you see what I'm saying here? So this is what we want to wrestle with. Um, now, growing up in the church, and this has changed a lot since I was a kid, but growing up in the church, things that were placed over there was drinking alcohol, all the classic stereotypes that would be in a Christian movie, drinking alcohol, tattoos, or anything related to alternative culture, uh, skateboards, holes in your jeans, dr- you know, dyed hair, you know, like all of that kind of stuff. This is, this is what they warned us against in youth group. Uh, cussing, smoking, these, you know, the list could go on. Socially unacceptable things. And so then if you make mistakes and you're doing those things, you're even worse. So the thing I want to wrestle with is the difference between what is actually right and wrong versus what is simply taboo. Um, And so this is what I mean by taboo. Taboo is a social or religious custom prohibiting or forbidding discussion of a particular practice or forbidding association with a particular person, place, or thing. And the last one is the one I really want to hold on to. Forbidding association with a particular person, place or thing. In other words, but look, but, but look who, is dis, who is prohibiting it. Social or religious customs, culture. Either culture of the, the, of, the, of the community that you're in or of the religion you're a part of. In other words, something is taboo when people say it is. Do you see that? There's, there's, no, there's, no, there's not a need for any additional logic. It is wrong because we say it is. Not necessarily because it's actually wrong or because it's actually hurting someone. So every culture has taboos and censors. Every subculture has taboos. Uh, taboos. What is acceptable in the world might not be acceptable in the church. And what is acceptable in the American church is very different from what is socially acceptable in the church in Southeast Asia or in Africa. Not because we believe in a different God or we read a different scripture, but because our culture shapes us what we assume is ex- acceptable. This is certainly true in the time of Jesus. So much of the Bible is filled with deep principles that transcend culture and history. We talk about these often. We're going to talk about these today. There are, the Bible is full of very significant principles that transcend culture and time. They're written thousands of years ago, but it's still relevant today. But many other parts of the Bible are often limited to the cultural norms of its time. Taboos and expectations that influence what people do and how they treat each other. So to help us understand this, I'm going to spend today working through the prodigal son. Do you, do you know that story, the story of the prodigal son? How many of you have heard this story before? All right, so the, most of you are familiar with the story of the prodigal son. It's one of the stories that Jesus teaches. It's a parable, so it's meant to teach us something. It's a beautiful story about forgiveness and belonging. The story goes a little bit something like this. I'll, I'll share an abbreviated version. A son asks his father for his inheritance. 
Father gives it to him. The son takes all that money and goes to Vegas. And he squanders all that money, and he ends up poor and in trouble, working in a place he doesn't want to work. So he decides he's going to go back home. And before he even reaches his house, when he's still in the lane on the way home, his dad finds out that he's coming down the lane. And his dad runs out to meet him. Us. Embraces him. and Throws him a big party. My son has come home. It's a beautiful story. It's a powerful story. It's, it's, absolutely, it's, it's a story of someone who runs away from home, throws his life away, and comes back home to be forgiven. But here's the question that I want us to ponder today. What exactly did the prodigal son do wrong? The assumption is that he did something wrong, right? So it's a story of, like, sinner being forgiven. So what did he do wrong? What was his big crime? Anyone remember? He took the money. Why is that a crime? It was his inheritance. His dad didn't have to give it to him. He didn't steal it. His dad gave him the money. It was his money to do what he wanted. What did he do wrong? Try another one. Yeah, I mean, you know, if you want to, like, pull in, like, the historical context, it was... <laughs> so what you're saying is, is it was very rude. It was mean. But it wasn't illegal. Ah. Uh, yeah. And he's not allowed to do that. Now, he's not hurting anyone, right? And he's got a job, but it was inappropriate. It was taboo. We'll get to that in a second. Here, here's, here, here's what um, uh, I, I always assumed, and uh, I, I assumed going into this story uh, that, that, that it actually said in the text that he, um, you know, he, he spent the money partying, uh, drugs, alcohol, and women. Like, that was just in my mind. That's what I assumed about him, which says probably more about me than it says the story. Here's what it actually says. Here's what the story is that Jesus tells. Not long after that, the younger son got together. All he had set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. So what did he actually do wrong? Here's the first thing. Wild living. But we're not told what that means. We can guess, and we can fill in the blank, and maybe that's the point. Maybe it's not. The second thing he does wrong, in my opinion... Bad personal financial management, you know? Just really isn't planning his finances out. Was that immoral? I don't know. It's his money. He can do what he wants. But he squandered his inheritance. He was bad at money. He wasted it. This is aside from the fact that, of course, he was treating his whole family. We'll get to that in a second. But here's what we can assume. Based on this story, he didn't do much to break the Ten Commandments other than potentially honoring his father. We know he didn't kill anyone. He didn't steal from anyone. It doesn't seem like he was envying people necessarily. We don't know the status of his heart. I don't think he had a wife to cheat on. Technically, he spent the money that was his, and when he ran out, he went back to work. That's what happens. But here's his greatest sin. He lived in a way, and some of you talked about this, he lived in a way that would bring shame to his family. You see, that's what he really did wrong. He he behaved in a way that his family wouldn't be proud, which 
once again, if we really wrestle with this, is that really a sin? Before you answer, you have to understand that Jesus' family was not proud of him either. They came to him one time, and they're like, hey, Jesus, your mom and dad, your, your mom and brothers are looking for you. And he's like, you all are my moms. You know, like, he was a bit estranged, at least at some point in his ministry. He was homeless. He was living on the streets. He was teaching crazy doctrine. He wasn't, they weren't necessarily, from what we can tell in the context, super proud of Jesus. So before we say shaming your family is a sin, we have to really wrestle with, with what that means. But this is the real point of the story, because you want to know what would have really upset Jesus' audience, uh, Maria uh, answered it, um, was that uh, it wasn't so much that he was engaged in wild living, but rather that he worked with pigs because they were considered unclean. And unclean is sort of the Old Testament biblical cousin to taboo, right? Unclean meant it should be avoided at all costs. It would inhibit your ability to worship God. So he does, by working with pigs, what is considered inappropriate for a Jewish man to do. In fact, one of the worst things a Jewish man could do. So think about this. This story of the wayward son has him uh, doing something that if, if we told the story in America, I think we'd actually celebrate. Yeah, he's actually, this guy's taking responsibility for his actions. He's owning his decisions. He's working. He took the money that was his. He wasted it. My bad. So he gets a job. Honest work, right? In fact, in American culture, we would say, really, you're going to give up and go back home, you sissy? <laughs> right? I mean, I'm not making this up. This is part of like the pull yourself up from the bootstraps mentality. If this was an American story, be like, stay at the pig farm and work yourself up to management. <laughs> right? Because we have a different set of cultural values than they had at the time of Jesus, a different set of cultural and religious values. We have to recognize how cultural values and social taboos play a role in how we judge people's stories, if we're going to get better at loving them. So let me say that again. We have to recognize how cultural values and taboos influence how we judge people's stories if we're going to get better at loving them. What we're talking about here is the fancy word implicit bias. I'm not an expert. Maybe your workplace offers training. If they don't, they should. But there's one way to do this, um, to recognize this. There's an easy way to recognize how implicit bias exp uh, kind of impacts how we judge people. But it's only possible if we rewrite the prodigal son. And I know, don't change scripture. I think you're going to give me a chance. You're going to like this, okay? The prodigal son, beautiful story. I have one problem with the story, as great as a story it is. I think it's a great picture or metaphor for how God the Father welcomes us home, no matter what. But I don't think it quite captures just how beautiful Jesus is in the narrative of the salvation story. So I want us to imagine... Jesus is telling the story, so he doesn't include himself as one of the characters. He's humble like that. But I would like to include Jesus in the prodigal son's story. Now, if the father is God the father, that would make Jesus what? Yeah, one of the brothers. Now, in the story, there's already two brothers. The brother who runs away and the brother who stays. The brother who runs away shames his family. The brother who stays works hard and then gets mad that his other brother 
is thrown a party. We'll look at that in a second. So we're going to add a brother, third brother, the brother Jesus. And my question for you is, what do you think that brother would do? What, JB? Yeah, he'd go find him. We know this from Jesus. He tells the story of the, the, the sheep, one, one out of 100 goes missing, and he says the shepherd goes after the one. He would go after his brother. Here's what I think. He'd go find his brother. He'd protect him. When his brother got drunk, he'd carry him home. When his brother got in trouble, he'd watch out for him. He'd put up with his wild living. And then when his brother ended up in a pigsty, I bet he'd get a job too, even though it meant that he'd become unclean. And if you're like, I don't think Jesus would do that, then you haven't read the Gospels. Because that's exactly what Jesus does in the Gospels. I think Jesus would would, would do that in this made-up story of the prodigal son because that's actually what Jesus did when God took on flesh and lived amongst us. He sought out those who were wasting their life on wild living, the hurting and the unclean and the broken, and he spent time with them so much so that he started getting lobbed in with them. Consider the story in Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 15. It says, while Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples. And there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? It's gross. On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. Jesus gained a reputation of being a friend of sinners. My question for you, if you claim to be a follower of Jesus, is your, has your following of Jesus hurt your reputation? And if it hasn't, are we following Jesus? You know, the Father might be waiting at home for for us to come home and welcome us, and it's beautiful. But Jesus is here with us every step of the way. But it doesn't come without a cost. Jesus was so committed to the ministry of incarnation that he gained a horrible reputation. Look at this passage in Matthew 11. He says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Think about this. The perfect Christ, the Messiah, the one who would come to save the world, the one who we love and worship, who we fall at the feet of the cross and worship, was known as being a glutton and a drunkard. Why? I'm going to suggest it wasn't because he was a glutton or a drunkard, but because he ate and drank with people who maybe struggled with eating too much and drinking too much. He spent his life with people who are wasting their life on wild living. Now, I have no doubt that Jesus didn't abuse food or drinks. I bet Jesus drank and ate in moderation. Did Jesus ever feel buzzed from an especially strong glass of wine? I don't know. It's possible, but uh, not for me to say. The point is, is I don't think he was a glutton or a drunk. But these were very serious accusations made against him. In this culture especially, Now, we would still look down on people with those types of words. But for Jesus, it was very serious accusations. I'm going to show you how serious it was. In the Old Testament, it talks about people who are drunks, people who are rebellious children. It talks about prodigal sons. You want to understand how 
radical the story of the prodigal son is, you, you have to understand the culture in which it was told. Because here's how the Old Testament says to treat prodigal sons. Deuteronomy 21, uh, verse 20, it says, Then they will inform the city's elders, This son of ours is consistently stubborn and rebellious, refusing to listen to us. What's more, he's wild and a drunkard. This is the verse the people would have had in mind when they called Jesus a glutton and a drunk. This is the verse they would have had memorized when Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son. And do you know what Deuteronomy says to do about people who are like this with prodigal sons? Next verse. I'm going to skip at Verse 21. Then all the men of his town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. Old Testament for you. That's the original story of the prodigal son. You run away and engage in wild living and shame your family. You will be placed in the middle. Grown men will encircle you. They will carry these large stones that you get in arid environments. And we will throw these large stones at you until you are no longer conscious and alive. That'll teach you. A lot less wild sons then. Because they'll hear about it and be like, I ain't going to do that. We'll all just stay in line out of fear. When Jesus tells the story of the prodigal son, oh man. It's yet another great reversal in the scriptures and in the person of Jesus. You want to know why they killed Jesus? You know, you have to understand that Jesus was eventually hung on a cross. And they killed Jesus for a lot of different reasons. But when I say associating with those that the world says you shouldn't associate with will cost you, what I mean is, is for Jesus, it's one of the reasons why they killed him. When they hung Jesus on a cross, when they killed him, they thought sincerely that they were loving Jesus. Oh, they thought they were doing what's best for him. They were doing what God wanted, what scripture taught. Being a rebellious son who was associating with drunkards wasn't the only accusation they had against Jesus, but all of them, death sentence was the result. The Old Testament says that you throw stones at a wayward son until he dies. Jesus says you welcome him back home with open arms. The Old Testament law shows us how much we need to change. But hear this. Jesus shows us how much God is willing to change for us. That's the incarnation. That God would not only take on flesh and become a human, not only move into the neighborhood, but then go hang out with the people he wanted to be in relationship with. Even at the cost of God's reputation. I'm not saying that Jesus did anything wrong. I'm saying that Jesus did things that the culture he lived in said was wrong. I'll give you a personal example, and I hope you don't judge me. I have been known to cuss. bomb and everything, all the way up. I don't do it all the time. 
I'm actually trying to cut back because I have a six-year-old and he listens to everything. And he said a few words that we had to inform him was not appropriate. Now, many of you know that I cuss, but if you don't, and if you're shocked, hold on to that feeling. What is shocking about that? Why are you shocked? What is so wrong with it? Is it immoral, unethical, or just culturally taboo? Doesn't take a genius to recognize that cuss words only have power because our culture gives them power, right? So arbitrarily, they are cuss words. Now, most know that I've been known to cuss, but what you don't know is probably why I started cussing. And here's what I want to tell you. I don't know if this makes it better for you or not. Maybe it makes it worse. But I did it intentionally, because I am that kind of person. Um, uh, and, and here's the biggest reason. I'm going to show this meme. This, this is a graph of what people do when they find out that I'm a pastor during normal conversation. The green is, oh, wow, I go to X church, do you know it? The red is uh, silently get awkward. The blue is continue normally. And the orange is they stop cussing. <laughs> and I'm here to tell you that this is 100% accurate and that pastors joke about this. The biggest result in my interactions with people when they find out I'm a pastor is they either apologize for cussing, if they already have been, or they stop cussing around me. I first noticed this in college. I went to a small Christian university, and um, we were uh, basically three kinds of people there. There were people who were training to be pastors, clean-cut white men. This was an evangelical school. Don't go crazy here. <laughs> Those training to be elementary ed teachers was the other big school in our tiny little university, and they were the most reasonable people at school and kept all of it from falling into chaos. And then there were those who were hoping to be creative, professional writers. Now, I hung out with both the pastors and the creative writers. This is not a surprise to any of you if you know me. And let me tell you, those are very culturally different groups. In this particular small evangelical school, the pastors were professional, kind, groomed, nice, intimidating, and they watched Band of Brothers all the time. <laughs> Do you know what I'm talking about? It's a great show. I watch it, too. It's a war movie. Once again, like, we're fine with violence, so whatever. But the people who go to school to be a professional writer, they are not the same. Um, the writers, uh, I'm thinking of specific people here, dreads, skateboards, fantasy tropes, they LARPed. Does anyone know what that is? Live action role playing, we had sword fights in the cafeteria. In full medieval, we had a renaissance fair every lunch, basically. They also smoked. Some did drugs, embraced alternative culture. They were creative writers at a Christian university. What did you expect? Now, here's what I, I noticed the writers around the pastors. And here's what I noticed. They were very careful. And they weren't themselves. They didn't cuss, and they didn't act a certain way. Not when they were, like, amongst themselves. And so I made a decision. I said, here, this is, I'm a very logical person. It gets me in a lot of trouble. These clean-cut white male pastors don't need me. <laughs> They're fine. Do, do you know, like, I'm not called to reach pastors who are already following Jesus. <laughs> but my creative writing friends, some of them are on the fence. Some of them didn't believe in Jesus anymore. Most had grown up in the church, but had kind of given up on it. 
the ones that were following Jesus had alternative, different views of what it meant to be a Christian than the typical evangelical expression, and they were figuring it out. And I found, this is my personal experience, I found that cussing, as silly as it sounds, and embracing other things like being open to having a beer or not judging people who smoke, even though I don't like the smell of it, these things did a lot to gain me a positive experience, a relationship with my writer friends. At the same time, it gave a lot of concern for my pastor friends. I probably made it on their prayer list. <laughs> Just serious. And I, to be honest, I always feel like I've made Christians a little nervous. This sermon might make you nervous. And I don't think it's because I'm a terrible person. It's because I want you to hear this. I'm not going to get it always right, but I'm honestly just trying to be more like Jesus. And I don't want that to come across as self-righteous or whatever. Like, I'm, I'm just trying to figure that out. And I'm probably failing half the time. But all I can do is try to be more like Jesus. And that's the invitation for you, is that you try to be more like Jesus. And you love people. At the end of the story of the prodigal son, the version Jesus told, not my version, the, 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 the brother's upset. He's upset that after all that his other brother did, squandering his father's wealth, hurting his family's reputation, that his father would, would, would hold him accountable. That not only did he welcome him back, but he threw his prodigal son a party. And his brother's mad about it, so his father pulls him aside and he tells him this, and this is what I want to end with. He says, it was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. Hold on to those words. Just sit with it for a second. He was dead, but now alive. He was lost, but now is found. His father was able to look past all the things that made him uncomfortable. All the shame he brought on his family and the uncleanliness around interacting with animals he shouldn't and all of his wild living, whatever that was, all the mistakes and quirks of living on this side of the line, he looked past all that, and he recognized that under it all was a human, a child. Someone who's fragile, hurting, lost, desperate. When we quietly judge people, we are judging people who are just humans like us. And they have fears and hurts, and sure, they make mistakes the same as us, but they're just humans, and we're all just trying. And here's the most important thing. We're all equally loved by God. And if we let social norms or taboos or culturally accepted expectations to change how we treat people and think about people, which it starts with how we think about people, if we allow that to change how we think about people, it will change how we treat people. And then it will define our relationship with them. It will define who is in and who is out. It's then that we fail to be the church. Because every person, no matter who they are, are deeply and wholly loved by God. And it's our job, our mission, to make sure that they know that. Even at the risk of our reputation. I'm here to tell you, bad reputation gets you in a lot of trouble. I've had uh, my fair share, and it's not fun. And I have a bad reputation at times and with certain people because of things I've done wrong and because of things I haven't done wrong but are just socially unacceptable. And for the things I've done wrong, Jesus forgives me. And I think for the things I've done to try to love people better, Jesus congratulates me.
He says, well done, good and faithful servant. And that is my relationship with Jesus, a mixture of grace and love. Let's pray. God, we come before you and we give you thanks. Help us to be people who love those who are often cast aside. Help us to lay aside our own prejudices, to do the hard work of recognizing the way in which society or culture has shaped our attitude towards people. Now help us get down into the dirt like you, to be incarnational people who are willing to get, climb into the hole, climb into the pigsty, and love people wherever they are. We give you thanks for all you do. In your name, amen.